was a bank holiday weekend and lots of people were uh, away uh, and Owen started a new series entitled All In, which kind of uh, seemed a bit strange at the time when everyone was all out. Um, but there's more of you here today and uh, I want to give this brief recap uh, for the benefit of those of you who, who weren't here that Sunday uh, and maybe you've not had a chance to listen to Owen's message. So. Um, so since launching uh, Foundation Church under Owen's leadership, we've had people who faithfully served in leadership roles right across the church, whether it be in life groups or Foundation Kids, uh, whether it be youth or worship or welcome, hospitality, setup, and technical. <laughs> technical sounds the right moment to say that, actually. There was some ringing going on. Uh, so these, these roles, these leadership roles, have been and they will continue to be so important to the smooth running of, of the church, not just on Sundays, but also uh, during the week as we meet as small groups. But what we've not had to date, although we always intended to have, is an eldership team, a team of men who have responsibility for leading the church and caring for and serving those who are part of the church. As we read through the book of Acts and the letters of Paul, we see that this is the norm. This is the model that we should follow, one of faithful men who are recognized and acknowledged by others in the church as satisfying the qualifications that are set out in Scripture, set out by Paul in his letter to Timothy in chapter 3. And in Titus chapter 1, men who will serve together alongside one another. It's a plurality of leadership, not one-man ministry, which many of us might have been so familiar with as we grew up. Over the past year, a group of men have been meeting together weekly, going through training and being accountable to each other. And we've reached the stage now where Names of those who are being considered as the first elders will soon be shared. And you, you the people, will have the opportunity to comment on whether you believe they satisfy the criteria set out in Scripture. And at the same time, as appointing elders, we intend to establish membership within the church. And why do we want to do that? Well, we think it's vital, actually, for elders to know for whom they are accountable to God. Scripture tells us that elders will have to give an account to God for the way in which they have shepherded God's people. So it's pretty important that elders know who's in. So we will be establishing membership. And we'll be asking you whether you believe foundation Church is where God would have you as a member where you will commit to serving, to giving, to developing relationships through which your faith will grow and you'll be shaped to become more like Jesus. So this series is aimed at helping us to see what it means to be part of the church, to be all in for Jesus and how this is worked out in the local, local church context. We're going to read a few verses from Acts chapter 2 that tell us what the early believers did. 
We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 42. Uh, The verses should come up on your screen, but look in your Bible if you've got a Bible with you. And we'll read through these verses from verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just to put those verses into a context, they come at, an end, at the end of a chapter, an amazing chapter where we read of the Holy Spirit being poured out on Jesus' followers. And they started speaking in tongues other tongues that were discernible to the crowds that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Jewish festival known as the Feast of Weeks. Peter, as a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon him, spoke with boldness. And he preaches to the crowds, connecting the prophecies in the, what we read in the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus, who they had crucified and calling on them to repent. And we read that on that day, 3,000 were added to the church, taking the total believers to 3,120 when you add them to the apostles that were believers before that time. That leads into the verses we just read where Luke describes what this increased number of believers did next. Two weeks ago when Owen uh, spoke to us, he talked about what was listed as the first of their priorities for these early believers. It was a devotion to the apostles' teaching, a devotion or a steadfast commitment to what the apostles were teaching these new believers. This week, we're going to look at the second of the priorities listed in, in verse 42. They were devoted to or steadfastly committed to fellowship. I wonder if you've ever heard uh, someone say, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I, I can't love the church. Maybe there are some here who've been in that place. Maybe you've suffered at the hands of believers in another church. And although you retain your love for Jesus, you find it a struggle, actually, to be part of the church. I don't want to dismiss the hurts that you may have suffered. Actually, I've been there myself in the past. So I don't want to dismiss it, but what I do want to say in all love is that we cannot love Jesus and not love the church. The two go together. 
In Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 25 to 27, we're told that Christ loved the church. His bride. Christ loved the church. And that he's sanctifying her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. It may not have escaped your attention that that work of sanctification is not yet complete. It's ongoing. So we still have spots and blemishes. We don't always get it right. But we're called to love the church as Christ does. There are others who profess to be Christians but aren't committed to meeting together in committed relationships with other Christians. They think they can go it alone. It's just, it's just me and Jesus, you know? We can have sweet fellowship. I can get in my lounge or in my study. I can have sweet fellowship with Jesus. I don't need to mix with all these other Christians. Do you know, being isolated is a dangerous place to be. I don't know whether you've watched any of David Attenborough's uh, programs on television or similar ones come to that. I saw one the other day where a pack of wild dogs were hunting wildebeest. And in the course of their hunting, they managed to isolate or separate the weakest of that herd from the rest of the herd and so affect their kill. You know, when we're isolated, we're weak. We're vulnerable. We put ourselves in a dangerous place. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter writes, in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As we look at our passage today, I trust we'll be reminded how important fellowship is to us growing and being strong so that we'll be less vulnerable to the attacks of the devil. The Greek word used in our passage in Acts and translated as fellowship is koinonia. It can be translated as sharing in common. Or communion, communion in the sense of close relationship in which thoughts and feelings are shared. Or it can be translated as a group who are united by the same beliefs. I'm so thankful to God that he hasn't called on us to live out our Christian lives in isolation. You know, I'd find that a struggle. I don't know about you. But thankfully, God has not called us to do that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When Paul, the apostle, wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating 
and various kinds of tongues. Some of the gifts which the Holy Spirit gives to the church. But we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. These early believers, they'd responded to Peter's message at Pentecost. They'd confessed their sin. They'd experienced forgiveness. And as a result, they'd been restored into a right relationship with God. They'd done absolutely nothing to merit that. It was an act of God's grace. And at that point, at that point, they became part of the body of Christ. Christians who come together in the local church. As we, a group of individuals, come together from very different backgrounds, collectively, we are part of the body of Christ. You know, the Bible also talks us about, about us being adopted into God's family. In the passage that Owen read earlier, about us being adopted into God's family and about us becoming co-heirs with Jesus. It's amazing. We're co-heirs of all that God has in store for us because of our relationship with him. We're all part of the same family. Owen was talking about this theme on this theme last week at our Thanksgiving service, about us being family. If you've not listened to it, I encourage you to, to do so. It's on the church website. So these 3,000 believers were now part of the same family, members of the same family. And we're going to look at our passage today and some other scriptures to see how these early believers lived out and grew in their faith. Firstly, we see that they did this in a large gathering. Verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together. These early Jewish believers continued to go into the temple courts daily, probably actually twice a day. Previously, they may have gone out of a sense of obligation, a fulfillment of the law, the temple courts were a, a meeting place, a general meeting point, and it wasn't unusual for them to go there. However, now their motivation was different. They'd come to know Jesus. They'd experienced what it was to have their sins forgiven and to have a personal relationship with Jesus. They had experienced his love. So when they gathered now, it was in response to the love they'd received and experienced. It was out of gratitude for all that Jesus had done for them and out of a sense of desire to meet with their fellow believers to pray and to praise God with them. No longer did they go out of a sense of ritual or habit or obligation. For them, it was a response to the fresh understanding that they had from Peter's preaching at Pentecost of who Jesus was and what he had done for them. When we read that they, were, they devoted themselves to fellowship, it reminds us that they had a choice and they opted to meet together. 
I sometimes wonder, you know, whether we view these early Christians, these early followers of Jesus, as living some sort of monastic experience. Set apart from the world. Let's get this in perspective. These 3,000 believers, they had jobs. They had businesses to run. They had families with children who wanted their attention. They probably had hobbies and sports that they would like to engage in. Don't ask me what they were in those days. Maybe chariot racing or something like that. But they had sports and hobbies. They had lots of other distractions, things that would call for their attention. But for them, gathering together with fellow believers was a priority. Such was the transformation that had taken place in their lives. They didn't come under sufferance, not under a compulsion, but they came because they desired to be together with fellow believers and to come together to worship God and to receive teaching that would enable them to grow. You know, the last couple of years have been difficult years for the church coming through the COVID pandemic. People across the whole of the UK have been affected by churches having to close down temporarily because of the pandemic, because of lockdown. And as that's happened, you know, people have got accustomed to sitting at home maybe and watching services on screen. Maybe it's been easier to do that. The kids can run around, they can do whatever they want. Actually, I don't need to focus entirely. I can get on with some other stuff whilst that's going on. For some, it's been a much easier way to watch a screen rather than meet in person. For others, though, there's been a genuine sadness at not being able to gather together a sense of missing the sense of togetherness and fellowship that come when we gather with other believers. Do you know, I'm so sad that the terminology online church has crept into our vocabulary. As if you can do or be church online. Don't get me wrong. Live streaming of services was an expedient during the pandemic. And we're so thankful, actually, for the technology that allowed us to do that and for the, the, the team of people that enabled us to do that, to provide a con- continuity of teaching during those hard months of isolation. But it wasn't church. It came nowhere close to being church. Across our nation, some have never made it back to meeting in person, contenting themselves with listening to broadcast services or talks. Now, some are shut in in their homes and so on, and for them, that's a necessity. But I'm talking about those who 
could and should be meeting together as God's people. When we do that, we settle for so much less than God wants for us. We talked earlier about church being a body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the different parts of the body and how they function together, not separately. He talks about us having different gifts and that those gifts are given to us for the healthy functioning of the church, not given to us for our benefit and our benefit only. They're given to us so that we can share them and benefit others in the church. With apologies to those of you here who may be squeamish, I read a report this week of an engineer whose hand was severed at the wrist in an industrial accident. Fortunately for him, through the quick thinking of his colleagues and the care of the medics, his hand was reattached during an 11-hour operation. As a result, he's able to do some, but not all, the things that he used to do before the accident. Now, just apply that to the church, to the body of Christ. Just as that detached hand was of no use to him whatsoever or to others around him, so it is when one of us withdraws from meeting together. We deprive ourselves of the contribution others bring. And we deny the rest of the church the gifting and contribution we are able to bring. You know, if we're not careful, we get tainted by the world when it comes to our attitude to the church and to meeting together. We live in a consumerist society, one where it seems like everyone is in it for what they can get out of life for themselves. Over the years, we've, I've seen people shopping around, seeking to find a church that meets their need, not necessarily around what's being taught, but things such as, well, what's the style of worship in this church? And how long is the preach? And is there, is there a quality you know, glitzy presentation? Is the church too small or is it too large? I've heard people say, oh, do you know what? I didn't get anything out of the meeting today. Sentiments like that make gathering together all about me and my needs and my wants. You know, when we gather together, we should be doing so to glorify God and to thank him for Jesus and for all he's done for us and to use, to use the gifts the Holy Spirit has given us to build up and to encourage one another. Will we also benefit? Well, yes, of course we will. But that's not the primary purpose. But we will benefit. We can expect the Holy Spirit to speak to us through songs, through the preaching of the word, through contributions others will bring. But the focus isn't on us. Going back to that same verse, verse 46, we see the second way in which they sought to live out their faith. 
it was in small groups. We read, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. This wasn't just a community of believers who met in the large gathering. They also met in their homes. So of necessity in small groups. They didn't just meet in their small groups in their homes. They met in the large context as well. They didn't see meeting together in their homes as a substitute for the large gathering or the church. Our definition spoke of close relationships between believers. Can you imagine how they could possibly develop the sort of close relationships that are being talked about here in the context of a group of 3,000 people? Imagine yourself in a, in a room, in an auditorium of 3,000 people and trying to develop close relationships in that context. It wouldn't happen. And that's why their meeting in small groups was so important. And they didn't just meet in the large context and see that that was a reason for not engaging with others in their own homes. For them, it was both. It was meeting in the large group and it was meeting in homes as well. And Luke helps us to understand the reason for and the importance of the meeting in their homes. We read that they broke bread and they shared food together. You know, coming together around food is such a sociable thing to do, isn't it? It's one of the ways we build relationships and get to know others. Many of us saw that for ourselves quite recently through the Safari Supper. Uh, those of you who participated in it, uh, you will have gathered in different people's homes for different courses of the meal. And, well, did you sit in silence when you ate? If you did, you weren't anything like the group that I was with in the different homes that we went to. We chatted, we talked, we shared humor, we laughed. We built relationships, we got to know, you know what others did for their work and uh, about other family members. And we got to learn a bit about their journey to following Jesus. Do you know it was no different for these early Christians? We know from the earlier verses in Acts 2 that they came from all around the Mediterranean region. Maybe as they ate together, actually, it was more like uh, our taste of nations than the safari supper. They would have had diversity of backgrounds, culture, customs, language to share. These would have been vibrant gatherings. In short, they shared their lives together. So much so that Luke tells us that they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This wasn't some form of early cooperative where everyone pooled their resources and each one took out an equal share. No, this was new Christians showing the love of God to one another and not wanting anyone to be in need. In the context of the large group or the church, 
That could only happen through some organized way. And actually, if you look further on in Acts of the Apostles, in Acts chapter 6, you'll see that there was a group of widows that were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And the response of the church was to give responsibility for this aspect of ministry to seven godly men. But the overriding principle we see in Acts is of people seeking to meet one another's needs within the small group context. Amidst all the diversity we see in the early church, it was their common faith in Jesus that united them. And it was their love for Jesus, their desire to praise him and grow in faith that brought them together in homes. You know, that's not so very different to us. We come from different backgrounds, different cultures. For some, English isn't our first language. But the thing that unites us is our love for Jesus, our faith in him. Just as meeting together with other believers was vital for them in developing their relationships with Jesus, so it is for us. Even if you say, I'm all in for Foundation Church, being part of church on a Sunday, I want to tell you lovingly, that's not enough. Either for you or actually for the rest of the body of Christ. Within Foundation, we've got three life groups currently that meet every Wednesday to worship, to pray, and to seek to apply what's been taught on a Sunday into our lives. I hope you're part of one of those groups. Those groups are so helpful. In our life group, I can't speak for all the others, but in our life group, we've got people in every one of the decades of life up to the 70s. I haven't quite got to the 80s yet, but you know, we range from one to the mid-70s in our life group. And that's so healthy to have, you know, in the spiritual realm, grandparents and parents and children and sharing life together. But when we come together on a Wednesday night, that should be the start of our small group activity, not the ultimate. We need to seek every opportunity to invite others into our homes, to eat together, to visit one another during the week, to go for walks with each other, to look after other people's kids, to encourage one another. You know, across Foundation, I hear many encouraging stories of people getting together in many of these different ways. You know, it's so encouraging. And I just want to encourage you, let's do it all the more. This is how we build relationships. This is how we encourage one another and we can hold one another accountable and help one another to grow. We're called into community. The Bible gives us a whole catalogue of one another's that should be happening within the body of Christ or a community of believers. They're dotted throughout the Gospels and the New Testament letters. They speak of loving, accepting, and being at peace with one another, of confessing our sins and forgiving one another, 
of serving one another and of encouraging and building one another up and so much more. This is what the early church looked like and this is what we seek to emulate in establishing a church based on God's word. And then finally, these new believers, they worked out their newfound faith in the world. The final part of our passage today tells us that these new Christians had favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This tells us that what they were doing, how they were going about living their daily lives, was clearly visible to those around them. You know, this wasn't some sort of underground church. In spite of the fact that there was persecution rife in those days, this was not a church that met in secret. They were being observed by others around possibly others who'd been present when Peter preached on that day of Pentecost. And what they saw was attractive to them. So much so that each day more people were saved and added to the church. Now don't get this wrong. They weren't doing what they did for show. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about prayer We read it in in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. He said, And when you pray, you must not be like hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. There's a big difference between doing what you do in order to be seen by others and being seen by others for what you do. These early believers had such an experience of Jesus that they delighted to gather together, both in the temple and in one another's homes. And they found favor with the people. And that favor was a byproduct of them living out their faith. Whereas for those that Jesus was talking about, being seen by others was the product. It was what they wanted. It was their aim to be seen by others. These believers were connected to the world around them and influenced, for Jesus, and influenced others for Jesus. And we're called upon to do just the same. The Apostle Paul talks about us being in the world but not of the world. We're not to withdraw from society. That wouldn't work. It may be that your neighbors or your colleagues at work, those that you meet at the school gates, or those you meet when you climb here at Oakwood or when you engage with other sports or or hobbies, that don't know Jesus, You're a conduit through which they can find him. We can't withdraw from society. Most of you here have jobs to go to during the week. 
mixing and rubbing shoulders with people who may not be believers yet. We all have neighbors. We all meet with people in the, need, in the week who need to know Jesus. I think for some of us, we live out our lives in very compartmentalized fashion. Work is work. And then there's my home life and family and friends. And then there's the church. And let's not mix those three components. But the Bible teaches that our faith, our love for Jesus, should permeate everything that we do. It's not something that we should keep to ourselves or only talk about with our Christian friends. Earlier in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus told his disciples, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I wonder if some of us are living as lights under a basket. The flame's still burning, but it's shedding no light to the surrounding area. You know, there's some very practical and easy ways in which we can start to let our light shine more widely. You know, maybe you've got neighbors who you're just on nodding terms with as you come and go, leaving the house maybe at the same time as they're arriving home or just crossing paths and you nod to them. Maybe you know their names, but you had no greater conversation with them than that. Let me encourage you. Invite them in for coffee. Invite them in for a meal. Have a conversation with them. Look for opportunities to break down the compartments you may have built up. You know, when you host a, a life group barbecue or a, a life group party, invite your neighbors. Invite some work colleagues to join you. When you have a family birthday celebration, invite some of your Christian family to join in. And maybe some neighbors too. Seek to mix up those compartments and get people in a position where they can see the love that we have for one another within the body of Christ. We're not looking for these times to be preachy at people. We're building relationships. We're letting people see the love that we have for one another and praying that that will cause them to question what we have in common, what unites us. Slight technical problem here. The sort of lifestyle 
that these early disciples were carrying out was attractive in the first century and was a key factor in the growth of the church. We've seen these early Christians, in spite of all the other activities of life and the persecution that they faced, they were all in. They were devoted to meeting in the temple courts and in their homes, and the living out of their faith impacted the wider community of which they were a part. For them, being with their spiritual family was a priority. They knew it was essential for their growth. You know, we face similar pressures to them, but actually without the overt persecution. And my question to you, my question to myself, is where does meeting together sit in our priorities? What things do we allow to prevent us from coming together to worship God and to bring our gifting for the benefit of others? How committed are we to one another and to seeing one another grow and develop in our relationship with Jesus? Would those outside the church look in on us and say, See how they love one another. Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. It's recorded for us in John's Gospel in chapter 13 and verses 34 and 35. And he said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, will all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, I don't want this message to be a legalistic thing. I don't want us to come under a sense of compulsion. I don't want us to gather out of a sense of compulsion or because it's kind of written down somewhere that we should do this. These disciples in the Acts of the Apostles came together as a natural response to all that Jesus had done for them. They'd experienced the love of Jesus. They'd come to appreciate that Jesus dying on the cross was for them taking their sins away was an act of grace that they could not have achieved that for themselves. They couldn't have relationship with God the Father through anything that they could do themselves. It was a free gift. And Jesus had paid the price and had done it all when he went to the cross. And it was a response to that that caused them to want to gather in the temple courts and in their homes and to share the love of Jesus with others. And my prayer is that we will have a fresh understanding of the depths of the love that God has shown to us, that our natural response will be to love him, to worship him, 
and to long to gather with his people. We don't sing many hymns these days, but I'm going to just read you a few lines from a hymn by Isaac Watts. Uh, When I survey the wondrous cross, and the final verse of that hymn, he writes, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Chris is going to lead us in communion in just a moment. I'm going to pray for us before Chris comes up. Let's just bow our heads in prayer.